0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. So, uh, welcome to the show, Edward T. Haslam. Thank you very much, Alan. So, Edward, uh, let's let's get into the book. Tell tell us and tell the listeners kind of what the book is 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 focused on. What's it about?
1: There, there's something called family jewels number one okay um that i need to introduce at this point um the the cia this is the cia's name for a document that they produced okay the cia called it cia family jewels all right What happened, uh, around the time of the Watergate uh, thing, the CIA director shot off his mouth about something and didn't know what he was talking about because he was a political appointee and didn't really know
0: what had been going on in the basement
1: for the last 15 years. And his director of security said, you know, boss, if you say the wrong thing like this, you could go to jail for it. You need to know what was going on in the basement. Okay? So the CIA Director of Security produced an eyes-only memo. Only three people in the CIA were even allowed to read this book. And it had eight things that the CIA did that was either illegal or embarrassing to the agency. Okay? When it, it, the month my book was released in 2007, CIA Director Michael Hayden called a press conference and said, Time to open the kimono. We're going to tell you what was in the family jewels. Here are the documents. There are eight family jewels. You can read number two through eight with minor redactions. However, there is something that happened between 1958 and 1964 that the CIA was involved in. And we are not willing to tell you a single word about. Family Jewel, number one, remains 100% redacted, even though it happened over 50 years ago. And what I think is in there is the fact that the CIA's money laundering operation was used to set up this laboratory in New Orleans because the guy that set it up said the rest of this stuff, you know, things were usually on um, uh, like a mortgage, you know, payments over a number of years and so many dollars a month and everything else. He said this particular project, the money came in within about a week from six different banks all with odd, uh, that had nothing to do with each other, all with um, odd amounts of money that added up to whatever they needed to build a facility. That's money laundering, okay? And the only people that you were know, in a situation to do that at that point in time, frankly, were the CIA under Nixon's directions. Okay, so you've got really powerful people here, and you've got stuff that nobody wants to. I mean, he said, well, why'd you guys do that? Well, because. They mass inoculated the American people with a cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine. You know, that's the secret. Nobody wants out.
0: Well, okay, so now how do we get Lee Harvey Oswald involved in this and tied to this?
1: Okay. Well, when they decide to weaponize the virus, they go underground with it into... um, Safe house level laboratories, and what they need, the resource they need, is someone who's been trained to work with cancer-causing viruses, because they're very dangerous to work with. You know, to stand there and kill the mice with you know chloroform or whatever, right. uh, cut the mice open, do an autopsy on them, or a dissection. I guess is a better term on, on the mice um... remove the tumors that are in the mice because the mice have been injected with this cancer-causing virus and they're loaded with tumors we're looking for big tumors, aggressive ones, okay, and you drop these into a blender and put a cap on it and you blend them up into a sauce and then you start putting that into test tubes and making slides out of it and keeping the notes on what you've done and that has to happen somewhere and somebody's got to do that you've got to get somebody who's been trained to do that um doing it for you okay now it just so happens that alton happens to know this young gal down in florida who um at the that moment is going to the university of florida Um, She uh, is actually from um, Bradenton, originally, and there's quite a bit of um, uh, newspaper articles and paper trail on her when she was in Bradenton because when she was in high school, she was doing her own cancer experiments to prove that cigarette smoking caused cancer, which was like Alton favorite subject, right? And she starts giving cancer to mice in seven days. Okay, well, that's faster than they're able to do it at the National Cancer Institute. And she goes, and it, the American Cancer Society is holding their annual national press briefing in St. Petersburg, which is right up the road from Mount Bradenton. And she goes and crashes that meeting with her notes and as they're about to kick her out someone says well wait a second uh, who is this woman why is she doing this you know and she says well I, i'm i'm doing this research and i've found something that's important and you guys need to know about it so it, they wind up going back to her laboratory and checking it out and she is in fact doing what she said she was doing she, she's outperforming NCI in a dirt floor laboratory in a high school with no budget and no security, okay? So they shut down her laboratory immediately and say, "Um, but you're coming with us. And they take her up to um, Buffalo, New York, to the Roswell Park Memorial uh, Cancer Institute and um, train her. She works in Dr. Moore's lab. Dr. Moore is the director. And they train her how to use cancer causing viruses. And, uh, to work with them and stuff. Because they all, these guys all know about the contamination of the polio vaccine. Alright? Then, they get her into the University of Florida. Okay? She's a sophomore at the University of Florida. This is the gal that has proven that she's willing to stand there at a laboratory bench, kill the mice, cut them open, and, and do the dissections. Okay? She has experience doing this, and she's been trained to do it by professionals so that she won't kill herself and everybody around her uh, while she's doing it. So Osner calls her up at the University of Florida and says, Judy, she's a sophomore at this point, How would you like to skip the last two years of college and start medical school in the fall? We'll pay. Okay? We'll (laughs) No tuition. We'll give you a stipend. uh, We'll let you in. The the, uh, advanced uh, admission program, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course Judy wants to do it. Her dream is to find a cure for cancer. Okay, so she is recruited by Alton to come to New Orleans um, to do this. Now she gets there uh she's early for some reason, so during in the book and in her book, she's got a very nice book called Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love and Lose Lee Harvey Oswald, um, which I wrote the foreword to and is actually published by my publisher, and Day. Um, that tells her story in more detail. But I have three chapters on her and Lee in Dr. Mary's Monkey, which is the book we're talking about here. And so this is all set up for her to come into town, right? But she gets there early and she starts shooting off her mouth about she's in town to work for Oshner and Mary Sherman and she's a great cancer researcher and all this other stuff, right? They have somebody that they need to get in there fast to get a hold of her, to get her to her where she's supposed to be living, to get her to her cover job, to get her set up in this secret laboratory so that they can do all this stuff. They have a Marine with intelligence training who is from New Orleans, who's got one foot in the mob and one foot in the CIA, and they send in Lee Harvey Oswald to be her handler. All right? He is Judy, Judith Barry Baker's handler. And within, he meets her like on a Friday, okay?
0: The next day, he
1: introduces her to David Ferry, in whose apartment they're going to be doing this research. The next day, there's a party at David Ferry's apartment where they produce Dr. Mary Sherman, so she can see that Sherman is actually part of this loop. Then, what happens is Judy's getting very suspicious that, I mean, this all doesn't look like real government stuff, so she says, I need some proof that this is a real government operation. Okay, Mm -hmm. And Oswald says, okay, I'll take you down to meet Mr. Bannister. So he takes her down to Guy Bannister's office. Now Bannister was the head of the FBI in Chicago, right? He's got all these things on the wall, and, you know, he can prove he's a big government guy, okay? And he says, yes, Lee is working with us on a Get Castro project, okay? So this has all got some kind of blessing. Then... Oshner had told her, I'll meet you the second week of May. So on May 8th, that's the first day of the second week of May, right? <laughs> There's a meeting set up in Charity Hospital for Judy to go in and talk to Dr. Oshner about this project. And who arranges the meeting? It's Lee Oswald. Because get Bannisters, I mean, Lee Oswald hadn't been in town for 10 years <laughs> except for a couple of days when he passed through on the way to the Soviet Union, how, how does he fall into all of this information and these people and this operation? It's because it's all been set up by Bannister, and he is the coordinator in it. And so he is, it shows, gets Judy um, her apartment, um, gets uh, her set up in her cover job, and in her cover job, she is working at the Riley Coffee Company. Lee Oswald is working at the Riley Coffee Company. They start on the same day. <laughs> they are referred by the same employment agency, and they both are working with a ex FBI agent by the name of Bill Moynihan. Okay. Now the the drill is this. These guys go in there, act like normal employees, so the rest of the employees don't even have any idea what they're up to. Early in the week, they take care of their week's work, and then come middle of the week, they start disappearing around lunchtime. Where are they going? They're going over to David Ferry's department. They go into his kitchen, and they start pulling out laboratory equipment from the cabinets. They convert his kitchen into a laboratory. Then the mice are being housed at a building across the street, which we call the Mouse House. Garrison actually discovered, had 2,000 mice in cages over there. Mm-hmm. Well, the Cuban guys that are over there take about 50 of the mice, put them in a cardboard box, bring them over to David Ferry's house, and Judy and Lee stand there and kill the mice, and cut them up, and do all the stuff I was saying about the test tubes, and then Judy throws it all in a lunch box, gets on a city bus, and goes up to St. Charles Avenue, where she has a key to Mary Sherman's apartment. And she lets herself in, deposits the lunchbox that's running for a while, and then goes back to the Riley Coffee Company so she can clock Lee Oswald out on time, okay? And Judy's initials are on Lee Oswald's time cards, Now, these time cards did not make it into the 24, 26, whatever the number is, Warren Commission volumes. Jack Ruby's mother's dental records did, but Lee Oswald's time cards didn't. Why not? Because any reasonable investigator would have said, who is approving Lee Oswald's time cards? And it was Moynihan. Normally, when Moynihan wasn't around, Moynihan's secretary was approving it, and Judy was Moynihan's secretary, and her initials are very clearly on Lee Oswald's time cards. So it Oswald gets in there because of Judy and because they have the CIA, and this is all part of Operation Mongoose, has decided to weaponize these cancer viruses to produce a injectable um uh, biological weapons that they can use to um, kill not only people like Fidel Castro, but also inconvenient witnesses and people like Jack Ruby who are in jail. Okay, and as the summer goes on, they 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 kill thousands of mice, right? And then they start testing it on monkeys. And at first. South American monkeys and then African monkeys which are more expensive and then they're finally at the point uh, the question is well this works on monkeys okay does it work on humans where can we get some humans that we can test this on with the intention of killing them to see if it actually works and nobody will get upset about this Where, where do we find these people Well, how about death row at Angola Penitentiary in southeast Louisiana, which happens to be right down the road from Jackson, Louisiana, not Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson, Louisiana, where they have a hospital for the criminally insane, and they can lock these people up in and test it in there. And this happens to be in what's called East Louisiana Parish in in southeast Louisiana, which is outside of Baton Rouge. Um, But the county seat, as it's known in most places, is in a place called Clinton, right, which is about 10 miles from Jackson. And it is on August 29, 1963, is when Lee Oswald is seen in Clinton, Louisiana, with, a, with Clay Shaw, okay, who's dr- driving a black Cadillac. Now, the, the backstory on this is they didn't want, uh, Shaw's driving them up to this mental hospital. Why? Well, he's a big, dignified-looking guy. He's got this big black Cadillac, and they're going to rendezvous with the van that's coming over from Angola Penitentiary on the highway. And so they show up at the front door. The front gate, I mean, it, this is the hospital for the Kremlin thing, right? They have fences and guards and guns and stuff like that, okay? They show up at the front gate with the state van in front and the black Cadillac in behind, and they even pick up a employee from the hospital who's sitting in the black Cadillac. All right, so they all get waved in together. Why are they doing this? So that they can go inject the patient with the buy a weapon to see if it works now they didn't want to wait in jackson louisiana because that would attract attention so they drive over to clinton now this is late august in louisiana it is hot (laughs) in late august in louisiana and it is now the middle of the afternoon and they drive in front of the courthouse they are expecting an empty plaza in front of the courthouse but what they didn't realize was that the day before, which was August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King gave speech. And because of that, the Congress on Racial Equality had scheduled black voter registration drives all across the South. So they drive into this square expecting it to be empty, and there is this scene, the civil rights scene going on where the blacks are all standing in line trying to register to vote on one side, and the whites are standing around in the shade with their arms crossed on the other side, and this poor guy in the middle with a badge, John Manchester, the sheriff or marshal, um, is hoping there's not going to be trouble. Now, into the scene drives this black Cadillac, Right? And Manchester looks at the, you know, who are these? Outside agitators, media, whatever. So he goes over, pulls his badge to the driver and says, man, your ID, please. And the guy takes out his driver's license and says, I am Clay Shaw of the International Trademark. Okay? So this guy knows who's driving the car. All right? We know this because he goes up to... Washington D.C. during the House Law Committee on Assassinations hearings, and he gives this information to Congress, but they stamp it secret and they don't want us, the people, to know about it. So for the next 16 years, this thing I'm telling you is secret, okay? And we know about it today because the Oliver Stone movie forced the JFK Records Act and it got released, okay? Now, what happens next is There's two other people in the car, actually two or three other people. One of them is this strange-looking guy with an orange wig and grease-painted eyebrows, who everybody recognizes as David Ferry. That's not hard. And then this young white guy gets out of the car, and he makes a bet to see if he can go over and register to vote because he's white. And he gets – he doesn't even live in the area, right? So he gets in line with the blacks. And while they're, they're killing time there, they're waiting for the payphone to ring, all right, uh, for, From the, you know, um, penitentiary saying, we're leaving now, you know, go, go to our rendezvous point. Okay, so Oswald goes over there, and he goes and signs in the gas register, I mean, in the, the log book, you know, who are you? I'm the Army Oswald. Here's my signature. And he gets them his ID, and they say, well, you don't live here. You, you can't vote here. And he goes back and gets in the car, okay? So we know Oswald got out of that car because he went and signed in to see if he could register to vote, okay? He's leaving a breadcrumb trail at this point, okay? This is a month after he started leaving his breadcrumb trail because he's known since late July that they're setting him up. To be the patsy in a fascination, okay? And, and he he, t- he tells Judy this in in, in late July. So all, all this is happening up there, and then th- they get into the mental hospital and they inject these guys. And Judy's not with them at this point. All right, it's 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 Ferry and Oswald and, and Clay Shaw, and they drive back. Now this hospital is four hours north in the world three and a half four hours okay it is not in a suburb all right it's four hours of highway driving okay so you drive up there you got a couple hours there and you drive back you just spent 10 11 12 hours doing this this is a full day project all right now what they need to know is does this work will this guy get cancer and there's a special test and there's a handful of people in the country that know how to do it and one of them is judith ferry baker why does she know because she was trained up at the roswell park cancer center in buffalo new york how to do this test okay so she needs to get back up to this hospital all right and they have lee oswald drive her up in this old beat-up green car called a Kaiser, and he drives all the way up there and takes her over. She's wearing a nurse's uniform, takes her over to the um, uh, hospital, the mental hospital up there, so she can go in and do the test to see if the cancer has kicked in, which it has. Okay. At this point in time, she realizes that, hey, these people are using me as an asset to murder people, and she bolts. All right, And at that point, she gets kicked out of the world. O- Oshner is furious at her and kicks her out of the world. This is all told in me and Lee uh, very clearly. And so what happens now is Oswald has nothing to do except wait to see if this weapon works. And if it does, his job is to take it to Mexico City so they can try to get it into Cuba to kill Castro. And so for the month of September, Judy's gone, Oswald sits around, he doesn't do any leafleting, he doesn't do any political stuff, he sits around on his front porch reading because he's waiting for the orders to go to Mexico City. And he hadn't worked in about... Six weeks, maybe nine weeks. At this point in time, has no money, but somehow he's able to get on a bus and go to Mexico City and pay for hotel rooms and everything else. Somebody is financing Oswald at this point, and it's very clearly at, at this point that we now know it's CIA. And so, that is how to answer your question: How does Oswald get involved in the middle of this? And you know, and then there's this other issue is that we seem to have. A number of epidemics going on some involving cancer and some involving monkey viruses and one of which is AIDS and so the logical question is how many of these things are actually connected at this juncture all of which started out with this murder of my father's friend right. okay and I, I wanted to know what happened and what I was able to do was I was able to go to the library of all places and get the police reports and the autopsy reports and all this stuff. And so I actually, and all the newspaper coverage, right? And so I had hard, real documents from the authorities that I was able to go through and, and I got out on my kitchen table and I made a stack of the official things and a stack of the media and when I read through them it was then I realized that there was nothing in the media about Mary Sherman's arm being missing okay and later on I got the photos and and, and put them in the updated edition of the the book I'll look for the word crime scene photos uh, the the words crime scene photos at the bottom of the cover Um, and uh, you know, one of the really interesting things. I mean, how high does this go? You know, as I was going through the the media things, the, the newspaper articles, I was just telling you about. You know, it's, I was noticing all the other stories that were on these pages, and one of the stories that appears was that it appears on Wednesday, right? Which is June twenty. I mean, July twenty second, um, nineteen sixty four on mary's body is found on july 21st on tuesday in the morning okay the story that appears on wednesday says yesterday president johnson suddenly jumped in his limousine and drove to the pentagon for an unannounced visit when he came out he had his driver take him to Arlington National Cemetery, where he stood at Jack Kennedy's grave for the first time. Something happened that day. Huh. I find it to be an interesting connection, you know. Yeah. Did, did they have to brief Johnson on what happened in New Orleans on this murder? So that Johnson could tell Jagger Hoover, do not investigate this. And 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 what amuses me and on the dark side of my personality is that Jagger Hoover tells his agents not to investigate this on the grounds of jurisdiction. Alright? He says this is an NOPD jurisdictional matter. But if I'm right and Mary Sherman was electrocuted at the US public health service hospital that's federal property and that is FBI jurisdiction and the whole point of relocating her from the public health service hospital back to her apartment taking the murder scene was to get it off of federal property and out of FBI jurisdiction
0: when they when they so they chose to kill uh Dr Sherman um, did they not also want to kill uh, Judith Baker?
1: Um, first of all, Judith Baker left New Orleans almost a year earlier and had gone back to Florida and had been told that if she opened her mouth, she'd be killed. So she's basically in hiding. Okay? Um, were they trying to kill Mary Sherman, or were they trying to kill Dr. Alton Oshner, or were they just trying to kill whoever turned on the particle accelerator? Okay? We don't know. All right? Um, One of the things, again, you can tell by this interview, there's a lot of moving parts in here, okay? And this is all very carefully explained in my book, Dr. Mary's Monkey. But one Mm -hmm. of the things is where was Mary Sherman for the two weeks before she was
0: before she died,
1: right? Hmm. She was in Boston. Well, if you know Boston is where they make the linear particle accelerators, then you can say, well, gee, maybe Mary was up there because she was being trained how to operate the linear particle accelerator because they no longer had their other guy that was part of the original team there who was the linear particle accelerator operator out of Princeton. Okay, so somebody else had to operate it. If if Al Nochner himself had grabbed that handle and blown off his arm, they would not have been able to drag him back to his uh, his house and call it a sex flashing, which is what they did to Mary Sherman.
0: They got away with that because she was a
1: widow with no family, and once people found out about the. Dimensions of the murder. Um, you know, everybody wants to take three steps back. You know. Now, At any you, rate, that's the.
0: I was going to say, do you attribute the, the cancer death of Jack Ruby uh, to something that someone did to him?
1: Yes, they locked him in a room with an X-ray machine for a half an hour, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and to, to lower his immune system. Um, and then they somebody injected him with something, and he passed the note to the guard and said, "They have injected me with cancer." That we we have a time frame on Jack Ruby's death from when he was um, uh, first shown to have cancer. First of all, he had a doctor who um, said he was in fine health. You know, he was kind of a physical fitness not Everything else, he was in fine health. That doctor who's name, I think he's a or something, he's an oriental uh, guy, um, was transferred out of this, and this guy, Joey West, was brought in, who's basically a CIA doctor, and 28 days later, Ruby dies. Well, it happens to be 28 days, you remember the, the guy up at the mental hospital and Oswald's waiting for him to die? 28 days later, he dies, right? That's how long it takes the cancer to kill people. Right, and Ruby is sitting there in jail, waiting for a retrial, outside of Dallas. You know, and Ruby's asked Earl Warren, said, "Can you guys get me out of here? I'm not safe here in Dallas. They're going to kill me." You know. At any rate, so um, was Ruby assassinated with this biological weapon? My opinion is yes.
0: Wow. So, now, they were never able to get this to Castro, or get him um, by this means at all. Uh, do you think they tried, actually?
1: Um, well, first of all, I think that Castro has found out about it. And, and the Cubans had very good intelligence, in, particularly in places like New Orleans. And um, there, were, there were efforts to get doctors in Cuba... To cooperate with this in terms of um, getting Castro there. And there's some of the stuff that's come out recently um, uh, through the files, JFK files being released, uh, show more of the detail about what happened in Mexico City and how Oswald was trying to hand off uh, what he thought was the biological weapon. I, I think he actually got swindled out of it on his way to Mexico City by some people in Texas. But the, um, uh, They were trying to get it in there. I, I think the whole thing is a harebrained scheme in, in the first place, but when you're dealing with those kind of people, you, get, you, you feed them this BS and try to get them to believe it, so they'll keep doing the work. But what they wound up with in Texas was the bioweapon that they could inject into Ruby, you know, to keep Ruby from talking. Because one of the things Ruby was doing, R- Ruby was really tight with Carlos Marcello, all right, the mob boss in New Orleans, right. and he was running the money for this secret laboratory from the people in Dallas down to New Orleans. Okay, he was part of the financing of it, and he knew all about it. Okay, so when Ruby said, I've been injected with cancer, you know, he knew what he was talking about. And, and you know, he's a nightclub owner. with, he you know? You know, um, Ruby was part of, part of the operation and was the gun runner and stuff, you know?
0: Wow. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, Oswald and uh, Baker um, kind of thought that he was becoming a patsy. Uh, Did did he know that the assassination was going to happen?
1: He was infiltrating the plot. And he got to a point where he, and this is late July, where he said, I've seen too many faces, and I'm the only person around here that's expendable. And they have asked me to do a bunch of stuff in August, which he later does. Which will make me look like a communist, okay? The fair play for Cuba things, and so he says, if I'm being set up to look like a communist, and they're planning on killing Kennedy, and I've seen all the faces, then who's the logical guy that they're going to set up as the patsy? It's going to be me, you know. I mean, that's what Lee says. I think it's July 29th uh, to Judith and it, one of the things that happens that within a couple of days of that, uh, Lee, you know, the, the ferry's got airplanes, right? And, and, and Hugh Ward, who's Bannister's partner, got, and, and these planes are owned by people like Schlumberger and stuff, right? But they've got 1,000-mile ranges on them, twin-engine planes, all right? And Lee goes out to the airport, and gets on one of these planes, and they fly up to Knoxville, Tennessee. And now you can't get from New Orleans to Knoxville, Tennessee by car and back in 24 hours, right? But you can do it in a twin-engine airplane, right? So Lee goes up there, does something in Knoxville, and comes back and is ready to go to Mobile, where he makes a presentation at a Jesuit seminary about life in the Soviet Union. It's all documented, okay? (laughs) So what we've got here is we've got this little window where we know Oswald went to the airport, got on a plane, went somewhere, and came back. We also find that in Knoxville, Tennessee, at the Atomic Energy Museum, Lee Oswald signs the gas register. Lee H. Oswald. Pay attention, FBI. He writes U-S-S-R behind his name, just so they don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> then, as his address, right? Where does he living? He lives in New Orleans. Address, Dallas Road, Dallas, Texas. Hey, guys, the road's going to Dallas. This is Lee Oswald. Remember your spy from the Soviet Union? Right? The roads go into Dallas. Right? He leaves that. That's one of his breadcrumbs that he leaves. At any rate, then he comes back and tells Judith, he says, they're setting me up. They've asked me to, to, to go start a fight on Canal Street. They've asked me to stand in front of the international trademark and hand out leaflets in favor of uh, supporting Castro, they've arranged for the television crews to come over and film me. They're going to have me on the radio talking about communism. They're setting me up to be a communist. Why? Because they need a communist to be the patsy.
0: Yeah, yeah. It'd certainly, be easier to uh, to uh, make him look bad as well. Um, it, so. How how do you feel? This has all affected us today.
1: I should be asking you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you
0: know, you're the professional. No, I mean, do you, you think that um, this has uh, like because there's so many people that talk about the JFK uh, assassination and Oswald and and uh, all of that sort of stuff. Um, How how has this affected the way we deal with politics and the the way we deal with conspiracy?
1: Well, there's something called the Hamlet Syndrome, you know, um, which is we all feel like our president was killed, you know, by the people that wanted power. And those people pretty much still have power today. And, you know, if you. I mean, one of the things that happened fairly recently, okay, during the um, recent presidential election was this issue of Ted Cruz's father.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: In the photograph with Lee Oswald. Was that Ted Cruz's father? Yes, it was. You know, I I researched it. I published it. I interviewed Judith, who was there. And. Lee told her that's Rafaelo. He's here to protect me because he's a Cuban, and if any Cubans show up, he, he, he's got somebody. And you, you see in the, in the pictures, is not handing out any leaflets. He's just standing there eyeing on things, okay? And what people need to know is th- this guy was no transient Cuban. This guy was a graduate in Petroleum Engineering from the University of Texas, who owned an oil exploration company located down the street from that place. And he had a history of being involved in Cuban political activities. And he was asked probably by Bannister to come over and help keep an eye on Lee so if somebody showed up, Lee didn't get beaten up on camera, you know, because Lee was concerned about that you know, because uh, Lee had been arrested the week before, August 9th, and um, was concerned that that situation was getting out of control, and he did not want to go back into jail. And one of the interesting things is, you know, so somebody called, Judy actually calls WDSU and says, there's somebody out here handing out leaflets about Castro. Get over here with the cameras. Well, these guys are all cute. They're waiting for the phone call. And... Lee does not want to be seen doing this any longer than necessary. So he's standing there when the cameras show up. He said, look, the cameras are here. I need to get to work. And so he starts handing out the leaflets while the cameras are rolling. The moment the cameras are finished, he's out of there. Right? It's, It's a totally fabricated situation for the media. And, and it is Ted Cruz's father. You know, I, I got photos of of him before and afterwards, and did side by sides and all that other stuff. It's obviously him.
0: Just just amazing, uh, amazing how it all ties together. Um, so now, I guess you communicate with Ju- Judith Baker a lot still.
1: Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but you know, I, I have in the past. Um, Certainly when I was trying to figure out who she was and and uh, I actually did the first round of editing on her me and lead book. Um, so I had to really get in um, up to my um, eyeballs in her story. I, I did a timeline on it and I fact checked it and everything else and uh um, so when I was doing that I, I certainly um uh, communicated a lot, um, particularly in the run-up to that because I'm the one that took her book to my publisher and said, you know, would you consider publishing this? Um, but anyway, I think she's got an important story to tell in me and Lee. And um, my book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, um, what I was talking about here, half a, part of it is uh, in her book and part of it is in, in Dr. Mary's Monkey. Um... But, you know, it's from a distance it sounds pretty strange, but you get into the book and you'll see it's it's documented like a master's thesis. I mean, I, I nailed out everything I could, and some of it is from my personal experience, you know. Um, and so some of it is my eyewitness testimony, some of it is Judas eyewitness testimony, and, and as many documents as we could find to support it all.
0: Yeah. So what do you think the... the um, the best uh, books besides yourself and Judith to read. Do you think there's any any other uh, what angle do you take in this whole JFK uh, assassination to be the best? Well,
1: it, it, first of all, Oliver Stone's movie is a great place to start, just the movie itself, right? right. And that movie is based upon two books. The First book is Jim Garrison's On the Trail of the Assassins because the movie is about Jim Garrison I mean, and his prosecution of Clay Shaw. Um, the other book that um, Stone used just because it covered so much and had so much great information about Daily Plaza and stuff was Crossfire by Jim Mars. And so I. Say so if you're new to the Kennedy assassination and you and you, you want to have the the Bible um, of it from this side of the aisle, um, Crossfire is the the place to start. Um, and Jim Mars wrote the forward to Dr. Mary's Monkey, and he wrote the afterword to Me and Lee. So I worked with him pretty closely on both of these things, and. Uh, you know it's great having a world-class expert like Jim Mars um, looking over my shoulder um, you know and, and if I would have a question I'd call him up and he'd have all the Warren Commission volumes there on his shelf and he's got them indexed and look it up and say yeah that's right here blah 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 and um, yeah and, and Jim has uh, has died um, yeah. great loss to to everybody but um I would say his book is is really the place to to start. Jim Garrison's book is is excellent. Um, you know, I, I kind of my, I look at my book as kind of I I had no intention of getting into the Kennedy thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I I entered it through the back door, you know, but I was committed to follow the story wherever it led, and it just happened to lead there. Yeah. Okay, and. Um, It was 60 Minutes, the CBS News show, that brought Judith Barry Baker to me, you know, because she kept telling them, oh, there's this book, and I was in that laboratory, and I was the person doing that work, you know. So they brought her to me, and it was, uh, you know, um, they spent 14 months and a lot of money investigating her story, which they would not have done if they had not taken it very seriously. And then the phone rang, and um, somebody upstairs shut it down.
0: Wow. So her story
1: never got on sixty minutes, but it got to me, and I took it to trying day, and now her book is, um, which is very well received on Amazon. You can look it up, me and Lee. It's got like uh, five hundred twenty-five reviews on it, four and a half stars. Um, it's um, People really, really like her book and thank her for telling her story. She's a whistleblower.
0: Yeah. Now, let's give out your website um, and uh, book information. Of course, your book can be found anywhere, and um, we'll have it linked on our website as well. Uh, Your website is actually drmarysmonkey.com, and you have to spell out the doctor. That's correct. Right, and so we'll have that linked as well. Um, any other information for people, for listeners, to get a hold of you, or no, no, that's
1: uh, that's pretty much it. There's about 14 hours of videos on the website, and there's links to other books, some of them I just mentioned. There are videos like uh, interviewing people that are vaccine manufacturers talking about the contamination of the polio vaccine. I mean, there's all this stuff that I've talked about. i put as much of that as I could on the website. So it, the landing page has got reader quotes. There's hundreds of them. And then you go into the website, and it's got all these links to this stuff. And then it's got the uh, crime scene photos in there for which are pretty strong photos. If if you're not ready to look at strong photos, don't go there. But if you want to know what we're talking about, that's where they are.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, again, our guest has been uh, Edward T. Haslam, and the book we're talking about was Dr. Mary's Monkey. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. To find out more about our show, Guests or listen to a previous show. Visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The
1: mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the
0: end. I'll see you.
1: She to me. I'll be back. This has been a production
0: of Something Weird Media.